This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Today, I'm sure all of you know whom you're here to honor. There are two of our own, two who each have a great body of impressive work, and we feel that they deserve our special recognition. We'll be honoring both Charles Fernandez and Pete Myers. And I've known both gentlemen for a long time, one of them longer than the other. Easy, easy. But first, first up, uh, to introduce Pete, let's welcome Van Alexander. Don't get up, don't get up. Pete Myers is one of the great treasures of our profession. What a great resume and what a vast body of work he's produced over the years. Some people call him a journeyman's arranger. That is because he could always do whatever the job called for. From his early beginnings in jazz, he honed his skills and subsequently scored and conducted many TV uh, features and motion, uh, featured motion pictures. What the hell did I say this son? Anyhow, you know what I mean. I just had a, a, a random thought. If Jimmy, if Jimmy cracked corn and no one cares, why did they write a song about him? Okay, think about that. It seems that, that Pete was born with a surplus of talent. And today he's still exploring new musical frontiers, and he's still a kid. God forbid, if I had to be marooned on a desert island with a man, I'd have to pick Pete Myers. Because, because he'd be constantly entertaining, informing, and I know I would laugh a lot. So pull up a chair and listen to an old friend and a pretty fair golfer, Mr. Pete Myers. <laughs> Pete, this is from the American Society of Music Arrangers, which you all remember. It says, with sincere appreciation for many years of superb artistry, an enthusiastic contribution to music, musicians, arrangers, composers. The Society honors you, Pete Myers. Thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. And for allowing me to stay up this long without incident, I want to thank my urologist. Uh, kind, kindly leave the stage. You can't get him off, right? Van, is it, were they talking about you? 
when they said if you open the refrigerator door, the light comes on, you give them 20 minutes. Is that you? <laughs> All right. So, firstly, I want to thank everybody that's here, whether you know me or you don't, or you've heard of my reputation or whatever that is. I want to thank everybody for coming. It's terrific. To be honored by my peers, uh, it's, it's, it's moving, I've got to tell you. And I'm not the most easily moved guy, but I have to be honest with you, this is quite moving to have guys come and say, yeah, you know, you're okay. Uh, just in general, I would say this, that those of you who don't know much about my careers, I would say the vast majority of it, I've done it under the radar. As we all know in Hollywood, there's only room for one John Williams, one uh, James Horner, and that type of thing. So I was always in the second tier down. We worked all the time, and we tried to do it in a professional manner. And uh, that was sort of the, pretty well what I had in mind when I uh, first arrived here in Hollywood in 1964. Uh, we have a gentleman in the room who I'm going to embarrass a little bit, but because I, I think now, at my age now, I should feel free to say this. And that is probably... When I came here in 1964, if I could have been morphed into somebody else, it would have been Bill Holman. Willis, please take a stand. A, a, a fantastic musician. Fantastic musician. I'm not the only one he influenced, needless to say. We, uh, those of us, that, that particular generation, we came up, we figured, hey, that's the way to write. That's better, you know. The, uh, the rhythm section's got some room to play, and uh, the band is now moving instead of being stodgy. You know, we like that. So, give you a rough idea. I'm not going to read Van's thing, by the way. An idea of, like, uh, who I am and what I did. Uh, you can probably still hear what's left of my English accent. I'm not from the South, so I don't have one of them voices like that. Um, I'm from the north of England, a city called Manchester, which is... Um, Number one, we have a fantastic soccer team. We call it football. But they, they are like the New York Yankees of soccer, Manchester United. And when I was a little boy, they were like movie stars to us. But what Manchester also had, I always compare it when I'm talking to people in the United States. It was, in a, in a small version, it's England, Chicago. It's like a second city. And the industrial barons who created the city, aside from creating slums, they also created great libraries, great art gallery, and a great symphony orchestra. And so that brings us to the music part. Uh, when I was a youngster, my family, we would go to the, the, the name of the orchestra, by the way, is the Halle Orchestra, and it's a world-class orchestra. And at that time, they had a conductor by the name of John Barbaroli. And uh, we would go to the Sunday evening concerts. So I learned my Elgar and my Sibelius very quickly. I don't mean to read it, I just sort of remembered it. I don't pretend to be like Mozart and remember it all, but I re remember it, it was how it went. So, as a, uh, let's say, late teenager, I went to London, went to Royal College of Music, and by then, the jazz bug had bitten me. And uh, I stumbled and fumbled and felt my way around in what was I thought was jazz. And um, because I could read, uh, let me put it this way, the trombone players that I was competing with for jobs in bands were sort of okay players, and they didn't read well. Well, I read whatever you put in front of me. It was never a problem. And so I could get in bands where I was really not qualified to be in the band, 
But from the band leader's perspective, I didn't make any mistakes. I was Mr. Perfect. So how I got into the arranging thing, I always wanted to write, but I didn't know quite what I wanted to write. But in playing in one of those bands, typically there was one which was a resident in a ballroom, I would know that we, would, we had a book this thick of arrangements. Some of them, the band sounded like Lester Lennon. It just sounded awful. And others, the band would come alive. And I thought, it must be the arrangement. So what I would do is, when we played the last set and the women came out with the vacuum cleaners, I'd stay behind. And those arrangements, I'd take the parts out, and I had a blank score page, and I'd write the parts down to see, how does this guy get this good sound out of the band? And frankly, I think that whatever I've written horizontally, some of it has quality, some of it's boring. But horizontally, I was always aware of sonorities, whether that's, I mean, those of you, especially those of you who've been around a while in Hollywood, it's amazing how many trombone players became arrangers. And I put that down to the fact that we, in our <laughs> checkered careers, we played in all kinds of bands, some with large trombone sections, Latin bands, whether it was just one trombone, where you essentially just played pedal tones. I don't know if any of you remember those bands, but all, and we played this pedal note. Well, the trombone always had to play with somebody else, and you became aware of balancing. You know, you'd have to adjust your balance. And people, well, for instance, say Nelson Riddle was a trombone player. Bill Byers was a trombone player. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So I guess I'm one of that line, trombone playing arrangers. Uh, let's see. So when I decide, and uh, let me get to this point, right. So I progressed there until they had a show in London. It was very similar to the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, I guess none of those, any of the English guys are still here anymore. But anyway, the band leader was a fellow named Jack Parnell, and he, I got recommended to him, and I was sort of a wunderkind, and I was writing these hot arrangements for singers for this particular show, and they always would have an American headliner on the show. And they would bring their arrangements. And I'd think to myself, you know what? I can do that. So I decided, like lots of, probably most of your ancestors, I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to go to America. And that was, you know, it's, it probably sounds like nothing to you, but when you're there, and California in those days seemed like the other end of the world, it's a big step. It's a huge step. And I was married, and I had a little 18-month-old daughter, but I just said, screw it, I'm going to do it. So uh, there's a humorous story, which I told Van earlier. We took an uh, ocean-going uh, vessel that took us to New York, and I was going to buy a car there. The only guy I knew in New York was a manager at a store called Colony Records. And so I walk into Colony Records, and he pretty well says, hey, what are you doing here, right? So I told him that I was arriving, and I was going to go to the West Coast, and I was going to buy a car and drive across the coast, drive across the country, I should say. So he took me, remember now, this is my first time here, so he walks me down to a place called Gotham Ford. Now, Gotham Ford, I get there, and this guy with me, by the way, is a gorilla. I mean, he's huge. He says, this, this guy's going to the coast. Don't sell him any crap. So I go, oh, okay. So the guy says, sure, sure. I think the guy's name was Irv. He said, okay, you're right, Irv, we won. So they have the car ready for me. It was a big Plymouth. 
and it had those big fins on the back, and I thought, oh, that looks great. And I was naive. What did I know? And so the salesman, or the, the manager, whoever the salesman, says to me, how long have you lived in the state of New York? So I went like, hmm, about an hour and a half. He said, what do you mean? I said, I just got off a ship. So once he realized that, he said, well, I can't give you New York plates. He said, give me $50. Okay. So I give him $50. He said, come back in a couple of hours. What he did was he sent Joe, whoever Joe was, under the tunnel to New Jersey. And he goes into Elizabeth, New Jersey, and let's call it the Humpty Dumpty Motel, a hotel, and he registers me in the hotel. Then he goes to the Department of Transportation, and he gets plates. So two, like two hours later, I come back with Jersey plates on my car and head west. So that's my New York story. My first New York, like, I figured, this is like an Edward G. Robinson movie. I couldn't believe it was happening. All right, now, I've done a lot of rambling and stuff, and I will get into the music thing. What happens with the music? Well, uh, let's see. The late 60s, I did a lot of trombone playing and a very limited amount of arranging until 1969. Uh, an act that I'd worked in Vegas with, Della Reese, she had a book written for brass, and I'd written a few little charts for her. She got a, uh, like a strip show, we used to call it. What would you call that, Van? It's like a, it's a talk show, but there's a lot of, would be like Merv Griffin type of show. So she had a show, 1969, and just for memory lane, I'll tell you who my band was. The trumpets were Buddy Childers, Bobby Bryant, the incredible Sweets Edison. Any of you who ever worked with Sweets or had him play on a date, nobody could play quarter notes like Sweets. I defy anybody. He could go bop, 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 and it was, it was, it was better than a metronome. I mean, it was just incredible. So Bobby Bryant, Buddy Childers, Sweet Sanderson, and our contractor was uh, Jules Chaikin. I have Bob Brookmeyer and uh, Mike Wimberly. The saxophones, the alto was Perkins, Bill Perkins. I had Don Menzer and Bob Hardaway, and unfortunately, the late Jack Nimitz. Uh, I, those of you who don't know, we lost Jack a week or so ago. And then the rhythm section was Earl Palmer, Chuck DeMonico, who in my mind was the best. Chuck never played a wrong or displaced note in his life. He didn't know how to. Uh, Herb Ellis, the guitars rotated. I either had Herb Ellis or Joe Pass. Kind of rough, right? <laughs> and then... She, her piano player, who was a gospel piano player that we had to have, Marvin Jenkins, and Willis wrote some wonderful arrangements for that band, and as, as did Bill Byers. The bulk of it was done by myself and Bob Florence. We were sort of, um, I can't say we really knew each other that well. Bob wasn't that kind of guy, you know, and I'm probably not either. But uh, we were able to write in a way where it sounded like the same person was writing it. And I wasn't copying him, and he wasn't copying me. I said to Willis earlier, I said, we were both devotees of Bill Holman, and so we were doing our version of Bill Holman on these charts. So that was 1969. I went on the road with her a little bit after that, and then got into the thing of writing arrangements for Vegas acts, which was a thing to do at that time. Fast forward... And uh, I'm skipping over some stuff because it's kind of boring, but I, I got into, this is a cute story. I'd orchestrated a couple of movies, and I'd also been ghosting for Peter Matz 
on the uh, Bennett show. I wrote a gang of stuff. To this day, uh, well, Tony Randall, no, because he's not with us anymore, but Steve, what's his name? Steve? Steve Lawrence, right. Steve Lawrence has an arrangement of Here's That Rainy Day that says Peter Matz on it. It should say Peter Myers because I wrote the damn thing, right? So I remind Steve Lawrence of that anytime I see him, whether he thinks I'm lying or I don't know. But uh, I'd worked so hard in that particular variety season. And in those days, I was never the top banana. I was always the second guy. The journeyman arranger, you know that guy? I was always the second guy, and I was doing three variety shows a week. I was doing Cal Burnett, as I mentioned, Sonny and Cher, and Captain and Tennille, which kept me pretty busy seven days and seven nights a week. I mean, I was the color of this paper. I mean, I never saw the light of day. Uh, and so I forget what time of the year, November, December, something like that. My wife convinced me we needed to get away. So we go to the Bahamas, and those days of uh, answering, what do they call it, answering service? That's what they were called, right? Is that right? Dial Faye or Your Girl or something like that. I left a message saying, I'm going to give you a number where I'm at, but unless it's for $8 trillion, don't call me. So uh, it seemed like the middle of the night in, the, in Nassau in the Bahamas. The phone rings. Hello, hello. It's your girl. I said, I thought I told you not to call. Well, this guy's been very persistent. I said, well, what's his name? He said, Bill Conti. And I'm thinking, who's a Bill Conti? I mean, it meant nothing to me. At that time, it wouldn't, but trust me, it wouldn't. So I said, well, he put him on. So he gets through. He said, uh, you've been highly recommended to blah, 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 blah. And he used the Hollywood vernacular. We're doing the Academy Awards this year. And I went, okay, that's fine. He said, will you be available? I said, sure. He said, come. I'm trying not to use bad language here, by the way. Uh, he said, can you come over to my house this afternoon? I said, Bill, if I could get to your house this afternoon, I wouldn't need this gig. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm in NASA in the Bahamas. Oh, I said, but don't worry. We're coming home tomorrow, Sunday morning. You tell me where you live. So I go back to sleep. I don't know, next morning in the Bahamas. I said, babe, you know, as far as I can remember, it's either been Johnny Green or Quincy Jones, Jack Elliott. Those guys do the Academy Awards. Nobody else does them. I said, the only thing, maybe this guy scored a movie that's a big hit. I said, didn't you tell me there was some movie about boxing? She said, oh, yeah, Rocky. It was really good. I said, and by the way, I never go to the movies. I, 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 I cut them apart. I can't help myself. So here we're back in Los Angeles, and it's time to go to Mr. Conti's house. And uh, I said, you know, I really need to know if that's him because I can't just go to his house. I said, at some point or other, I have to say to him, oh, by the way, congratulations on Rocky. I got to say that. If I don't, he must think like either I'm very arrogant or stupid. So we, we leave early and we go to Hollywood Boulevard and it's pouring rain. <laughs> One of those theaters that's showing him again, you know, the second time. And he's got the word Rocky in letters this big. Sylvester Stallone in letters this big. And in Bill Conti in letters this big, right? And I turn around to my wife and I go, terrific. So that's how I got introduced to Bill. And I, needless to say, I orchestrated a zillion movies with Bill. If Those of you who are orchestrators in here, 
should understand this. I don't, especially the younger guys. I shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it. I don't know if you guys, with the advent of the finale and Sibelius, I don't know whether you would actually be capable of doing this. I really don't, because you're not forced to do it anymore. We did 12 movies in a year. Can you imagine that? 12 movies in a year. The scores would be this high. I mean, it just sat there. and cr Bill was incredible. He could really crank the stuff out, and he trusted me. And so if he wanted to, if he was under pressure, the sketch would get thinner. But by that point, I'd know what he had in mind. Uh, so 12 movies in a year. Let me put it this way. I never want to do that again, ever in life. Uh, after movies, uh, I then started doing episodic television and uh, did a whole gang of it. And uh, that's what paid for this tie, actually. Um, it, it probably seems, especially today, because, I mean, I, li I listen to the, some of the television. By the way, I just give you my opinion. That, that series 24, I think the guy that does that does a terrific job. I mean, he really gets, I think, I know his first name is Sean, but I can't think of his last name. Anybody know? Huh? Yeah. No, but I, I mean, my opinion, I think he does a terrific job. But in those days, I mean, it sounds like I'm an old fart now, but in those days, you had to write. I mean, as a ton of Dwayne, you know how we had to crank it out. I mean, it was ridiculous. Dwayne uh, Tatro was one of my uh, peers at uh, Spellings, and boy, we cranked that stuff out. Isn't a miracle we're alive to tell the tale? I don't know how we did it. I mean, I look back now. I have, <laughs> this is another side story, but in, in my garage, I have a whole bunch of cabinets full of all that stuff. If I open one of the doors, I get nauseous. I look at it, I go, ah, this is terrible. And you know, many years ago, I remember Pete Rugolo telling me that one day he couldn't look at it anymore. And he threw it all in the trash. And I said, Pete, how could you? Now I know how he felt. Because now I'm thinking, who gives a rat's rear end about any of this stuff? <laughs> throw it out. Uh, so, Da, 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 da. That I probably, babe. How many years did I do? Almost twenty years of of uh, episodic television, and did bits and pieces in between. And then, in closing, let me say this: after that, I decided I'd had enough. I was going to retire. Uh, not that I'm a millionaire, I'm not, but I just felt that's enough. I don't want to go through this stuff anymore. And after about a nine months or a year of retirement, I was going to go nuts, and I would drive my wife crazy as a result. So I, I thought, what am I going to do now? I've got to do something. I'll start a band. No, you don't want to do that. Yeah. I'll open a club. No, you don't want to do that. All, all the dumb things, right? And then I, it hit me. I said, I said to myself, self, you know all the stuff, man. You know how that goes. I would create a publishing company, not just a rubber stamp publishing company, but a real publishing company that prints all the stuff, has it the stuff bound and that kind of stuff, mainly for chamber orchestras. Well, I mean, we've expanded it, but uh, it, be, it has become probably my favorite thing to do these days. Uh, when I first wake up in the morning, I can't wait to get started because in that kind of area, in that area of publishing, it has to be worldwide, and in today's world, 
We all have the internet. We have Skype, all the stuff. And so I make calls to Europe at 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning. And it's, it's not pressure. I mean, I enjoy every minute of it. And so in absolutely closing at this point, let's say this publishing company, it's not just publishing my music. Slowly but surely, uh, I'm going to sign other composers. I've signed one guy already who has some wonderful stuff. And um, there's another guy in the wings. I'll tell you who I've signed already, by the way. That's not shouldn't be a mystery. Do do any of you know John Rodby, who John is? Well, he, he as a, as a symphonic writer, he is terrific. I mean, really, really good. And we're going to be able to get his stuff uh, a recorded and b performed. And so, what I'm going to do as I leave the stage, I'm going to leave a few cards up here. So those of you who have anything in your catalog that A, you own, it can't be owned by somebody else. If you have something that you own, that you feel could, I would say aiming more or less at chamber orchestras, because there are far more of them than symphony orchestras, uh, take one of my cards and give me a call. And other than that, thank you very much. Thank you, Pete. Next, uh, our next honoree is board member Charles Fernandez. And to introduce him is our esteemed vice president, Dwayne Tatro. So let's. Uh... Okay, one thing I wanted to say before Pete leaves the scene is uh, he has a talent and skillful way of musically reinventing himself as times and circumstances change. That's the guy I know. Anyway, uh, it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce our second ESMAC speaker today. First of all, he's a friend. Uh, he's an instrumentalist, a composer, an orchestrator, a conductor. He's also an in entrepreneurial, high-energy catalyst, whatever the hell that means. But <clears throat> actually, we're very fortunate in that sense to have him on our ASMAC board. I'm sure you'll find his comments fascinating. Uh, let's hear it for Chuck Fernandez. I, I know I've said it to a lot of you guys already ad nauseum, but it, it's such an honor. Uh, it really is an honor. Uh, to count myself among this company. And I'm very thankful to have you all as colleagues and friends. And with your indulgence, or even without it, I am going to show clips near the end. So if you want to see the screen, you might want to move a bit. Um, and talk about walking in the shadows of giants. What an astounding career that Pete has had. Unbelievable. And it's also astounding what a, what a small world it is, because I, too, went to the World College of Music. Yeah. And a colleague of mine over here, Helen, Helen Good, a wonderful clarinetist, went, went there as well. So I'm walking down to the end of the hall and seeing uh, Gunther Schuler's uh, office at the end. Anyway, um, I, I do want to show some clips, so I'm not going to take a lot of time uh, with the notes, although I do have three pages of them. <laughs> anyway, so I was, born in New, I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, you, uh, down in the south, and I escaped. And uh, even though it's the best, some of the best food in the world, if you can't tell, I haven't enjoyed it. Um, 
when I got to, uh, and I started playing clarinet and piano in the third grade. And I, the two things I remember from my elementary school band director was the softer the butter, and don't slow down when you play soft. Because after all, when you turn the TV, when you turn volume up on the TV, do people speed up? That was his, that was his two lessons of that. When I got to high school, I'm skipping a few years. Uh, when I got to high school, uh, the band director and I both decided I wanted to play an instrument that had to play less notes. So I switched to bass clarinet. <laughs> it was also that year I did my first marching band arrangement, was, which was the theme from SWAT, uh, which was popular at the time. And it taught me my first very important orchestration uh, lesson, which was do not write high Ds for high school trumpet. Just, <laughs> just don't do it. It also taught me, uh, I also decided then to learn all the instruments just enough to know what not to write. And it has saved my butt countless times. And it's also in high school, actually, when I did my best ear training, because uh, one of the ways I made my living going through high school and college was playing in rock bands, keyboard sax and lead vocal, lots of Chicago, lots of Doobie Brothers. And I did about nine or ten top-to-bottom takedowns of Chicago tunes until I realized there were sketch scorebooks available. Uh, but if I hadn't done those, I, you know, I wouldn't have been able to develop the ear because I, 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 when I got to college, I had a lot of people pissed off at me because they'd say, oh, what's that? Say, oh, that's this. And they'd learn, turn around and look at me. And I learned pretty quickly not to answer too many questions. So I kept, I kept a little bit quiet after that. Um, so I, I, I wound up being the guy in high school that they put on whatever instrument they needed. And in the junior year, I wound up on bassoon. Um, and when I got to, and I played sax in the jazz band, and I wound up playing baritone horn in the second jazz band at Loyola University in New Orleans. I went there to get my, my bachelor's in music education, and when I entered there, I was studying sax and piano and bassoon. I gave up sax first because I realized there were guys who wanted to play it a heck of a lot more than me, and there weren't that many hours in the day. I stuck with the piano a couple more years. I got through the point where I had memorized 28 of 32 pages of Rhapsody in Blue until I realized that there were a heck of a lot more people who wanted to play it more than I did. So I, so I backed away from that a little bit. Um, after Loyola, oh, and, and it's also in Loyola where I think I got a lot of my mannerism uh, conducting. And Steve Piazza, the conductor of uh, the LA Winds and some members of the LA Winds are here, can, I think can attest to this. We went to New Orleans last year, and I never realized the effect that my old band director, Dr. Joseph Abair, had on me. He was always easygoing. He kept things light, never let tension get in the way, but kept moving and was really efficient. And I think that's had some uh, really good effect on me, as I think one of my best friends and clients, uh, Jeff Pfeiffer over there, who's an amazing, amazing, comp there are so many amazing composers in town, much less here. Um, that, that he can attest to, you know, helping keep it moving. So I went to UCLA for a, ba a master's in bassoon. Um, then I went to the Royal College of Music on an exchange program. Was the, first six, was the first bassoonist in 16 years to win a concerto trial at the college. And they asked me to come back the following year, all expenses paid. Right after my UCLA years, I went and spent a season with the Bayreuth Philharmonie in Bad Wiese, Germany, as solo and principal bassoon. Helen, my uh, colleague Helen, also played in that group. And it was interesting because most of the orchestra couldn't speak to each other because we were from all different countries, but we could all play music together. And I learned the, the Russian, uh, Russian operettas and the mazurkas and the polkas and learned how to play the waltzes correctly and all that stuff. Um, 
But in the meantime, while I was still at UCLA, I met the first most pivotal person in my life and a lot of other young composers' lives, Don Ray. Uh, he got me involved in the Pacific Composers Forum. I got on the board of the group, and it was there I met people like Joey Rand and Mark Waters and George S. Clinton and Peter Rutenberg, uh, a lot of really wonderful, wonderful writers in that group besides on the board. I was on, on that board as well. Um, and then it was there, I was an assistant for a very short time for Bill Goldstein, and then I became the assistant for Mark Waters, which really, really helped my career take off. Um, I had to do six demos to get closer to her style, because uh, to, to his style, because my style was more like Warner Brothers, but that's not the style he did, so I had to do those. Got involved with the show Bonkers and went through a whole bunch of other shows that are listed, listed um, in your invite here. Uh, so I met all these really great guys. See, I'm already past one page. It's a good thing. Um, while I worked with Mark on these shows, I got to meet really wonderful composers like Tom Sharp, Carl Johnson, Eric Schmidt, Mark Lundquist, John Given, and Harvey Cohen, who passed a, a few years ago. And I later worked alongside more composers uh, outside of uh, Mark's sphere with composers like Randall Chrisman and Dan Sawyer, uh, Jeff Pfeiffer, and a, and a bunch of other really wonderful composers. Um, I realized early on that I'm not the best at, at finding all the little details in the scores, and I had my own Black Tuesday early on. I had been working with Mark. I did one short cue, worked great, so he piled five cues on me that I had to get to him in two days. And this is when I was very young, and this was the days, you know, I'm sitting with my keyboard and trying to learn. I, was, I was, went to, from the freezer into the fire without the firing pan. And so there were a lot of mistakes in the scores, and we wound up going over 45 minutes, and I told Mark that, dude, I'm paying for the overtime. And I decided, how can I fix this? Because I, I was doing what I love to do. And so I hired a colleague then, who's here today, Ron Hess. He's a wonderful uh, trombonist and composer and orchestrator, conductor, and he's been proofing my scores ever since. So the result of that is, instead of having to sit in the studio and fix mistakes, I get more takes which is always a good thing. And, uh, but because it would be more typically more efficient, I'd get less face time with the orchestra, which, so that sort of backfired. Because that's one of the favorite things for composers to do is be in front of the orchestra. Um, over the next few years, I worked on more series and films, and, and this is when I started working with, with Jeff, Jeff and Rob Pfeiffer. Um, one of, we've, had, we've had lots of, of brother teams who do films, but not many... Uh, in music, we have the Fowler family and we have the, the Kelly family, um, but these guys are amazing. Uh, they're not only wonderful composers, but about the damn best in the business as far as doing the business, and that's uh, something I always look at in awe. Mike Tavera is another one. Uh, he's just amazing. If he's not having meetings, he's on the phone. If he's not on the phone, he's composing. You know, it's just uh, have that kind of drive is, is pretty amazing. Um, I've also been working on more independent projects. In the fall of 2003, I got involved with a, a group of people that have been very important to me. Um, as the TV work has waned, I've gotten more into live uh, composition and performance. And two groups in particular have been amazingly helpful for performances and um, such. And that is uh, maestro Stephen Piazza with the LA Winds, LA Pierce Symphonic Winds, and several of the people from the band are here uh, today. Um, and also James Domine, who does the Valley Symphony. These are two guys who really support uh, composers getting new things played uh, and aren't so selfish with their podium time either. 
that they'll enable the guys to actually, um, Dwayne has done stuff with, with, with Steve. And, um, and I know we're going to have some other, um, Ira, I'm, I've been telling him to get with him too. But these guys have wound up being a real family to me. Uh, we went through divorce, everybody goes through divorce, and we all, we all go through these things. And they've been very important for me. And I've been publishing a lot more band music lately because of getting back. And who would knew after high school we'd go on band trips? I mean, <laughs> but at least we go to fun places, Europe, things like that. And last year we went to New Orleans and everything. So, and, and just on a, different, on a different take, I actually got in that group from subbing with, for John Mitchell, who's a wonderful bassoonist in Dubliner, and I got in, fell in love with the group. Uh, on a different subject, I've just finished my second CD with the Royal Phil uh, called Sentimental and Animated, and several of the soloists on that CD, I, should, uh, I just got a call yesterday, I can pick it up today or tomorrow, uh, pick it up tomorrow, but Francisco Castillo is the, is the soloist on my oboe concerto, and Helen Good is the soloist on my uh, tone point for clarinet and strings. They're both wonderful. Um, also, Alan Steinberger was the soloist with Ratso Scherzo, based on a cue from the Casper Show, and a wonderful soprano named Marissa, uh, I mean, Melissa Fawn sang my songs from a child's point of view. Uh, that's one of the things... Um, that's one of the things that's coming out now. So, on to the clips. Uh, I passed up a lot of stuff, but we all have so many common uh, experiences. I've chosen three cues, and they're each for a special reason. The first clip is from Casper, and it's the one that pissed me off more than any other cue I think I've ever had to write, because it took me a, ha a day and a half to write, but the players were so good they got it in two takes. Um, and it's also a lesson in the, um, the magic of dovetailing, because once the, once the runs start, nobody has to play more than five notes. So it, it, really, it, it, goes, it, goes, uh, it really goes a lot faster that way. Uh, we would never have been able to get the cue done if everybody had to play everything. Um, the players were just fantastic, and so much so that I do want to play the music for you without the picture. It's only about a minute long, and then I'll play it with the picture. Because that's one thing about cartoon music. You can write the styles, but if you can't put it to picture, you know, what's the point? You know, so that's all. And so assuming that this, um, assuming that this uh, remote will work, this should go fine. I think it's going to. So first you'll hear the music itself. <laughs> So, thanks. I want to tell you the reason it's so frantic. In the Casper series, the father's name was Doc Harvey. He was the father of Cat. And in this episode, he's trying to revert Casper to his childhood. Uh, he's already a small kid, but wants to revert him to when he was a baby so he can figure out what's wrong with him and inadvertently actually turns him into a baby. 
uh, smaller baby, so he freaks. And the reason the music is so frantic is because there were only a couple times in the entire series when he lost it. Usually he was the straight man for all the jokes that went on, but this time he really came off the rails. So here is the, the, the scene you just saw with the actual picture, and you'll also uh, be reminded of the bane of most composers is uh, when they duck the music, which they almost always do. But anyway. One. The objections. There you think. <laughs> Thanks. That was actually my favorite line of the whole series when he said, when Fatso says that. Says, Think of the consequences before making babies. <laughs> yeah, that was excellent. Uh, now the next one, I wrote, um, when I was working with Mark Waters, I worked on several movies with him, uh, Pebble and the Penguins, uh, those illustrious films, Alvin and the Chipmunks Meet Frankenstein, Meet the Wolfman, um, Babes in Toyland, and this one, the Doug movie, I had done a little bit of work with Dan Sawyer, who's the wonderful composer for the Doug series. And I got to write a couple of Quail Man segments. And Quail Man is the alter ego of Doug, who wears his belt on his head and his underwear outside his pants and has the ability of the quail to dodge and dart. Um, and this was the movie, and Mark Waters scored the movie. And because the themes that, first of all, um, Dan, uh, Dan Sawyer wrote a great theme for Quail Man, and his partner, or his colleague, Tim Torrance, wrote a wonderful theme for Quail Dog. I didn't see any reason to change that because especially with superhero characters, you get really identified with the theme. So I decided to use that, but the, the reason I wanted to show you this is, is one of the countless things we've all dealt with is that it gets through animation, it gets through voiceover, it gets through everything, and then you realize there's a copyright issue. And in this case, one of the characters, the, the main um, competition for Doug, for this girl's affections, comes out and he's in exactly the dance, the, the, the uh, Lord of the Dance outfit, he does the Lord of the Dance dance, and he says the phrase, Lord of the Dance, which are all copyrighted. So they asked me to get as far away from the Irish music as I could. And uh, what I wound up giving them made them go back into the studio, and they actually redid uh, part of the voice to go with, with what I wrote. Um, now, I apologize for the picture quality, but this is what happens when you take something off a, a copyrighted, uh, co you know, a copy-protected DVD. But this is the Quail Man segment of the Doug movie. Mark Waters was the, the uh, composer for the entire score, but I used themes of Dan Sawyer and Tim Torrance. But the rest of it is just, you know, heroic stuff. But you'll hear what I did with the, the dancing guy. Let me see it again. Sorry about that. Skeeter, we're going to be famous. This, this is, is right, the right biggest here. thing ever. When the biggest thing ever happens... The biggest thing ever! Doug imagines himself a superhero, daring enough to wear his underwear over his pants. Well, man! A big dance extravaganza. Well, that does sound big. I wonder if it's a trap. P.S. Not a trap. Well, Quail Dog, as I always say, if it's in print, it must be true. And so, that night, Quail Man rendezvous with a certain young woman. Oh, Quail Man, how nice of you to invite me to this big dance extravaganza. Well, dancing with Quail Dog while enjoyable is not my idea of a perfect evening. Is everyone ready to dance? Who are you? And why are you clogging? I mean, who are you? I am the Lord of the Polka. Care to dance? Must dance. Curious. 
Sorry, pal. Full out. Fortunately, patience is the first quality of the quail. <laughs> Looks like an uninvited guest is trying to crash the party, quail dog. No time to lose. Fly away. One of the things that Mark was always really great at is giving me more than one cue at a time. Uh, with uh, All Dogs Christmas Carol, he would give me three or four cues in a row so I could build it over time. Um, but I want to thank I want to thank Asmac very very much, um, and I want to thank you. Uh, it's such an honor that you guys would come out and be part of my life and let me be part of yours, and we're all in this together. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.